Julie, welcome to Saltier Politics. It's a new year and it already feels, I think, worse than 2020 and within like 10 days. No. Um, well, <laughs> let's no, start I, low on the pessimism scale. Let's, yeah, it's going really get better if we start low, I guess. I don't think it's worse. I mean, look, we have a new Congress coming in. We had Warnock and Ossoff winning in Georgia, which I have to admit, I did not see coming. I, I thought they were not going to be able to pull it off, and they did, which is fantastic. We have a new administration coming in. But I got to tell you, after the events of the past week, if I hear about unity from Joe Biden, I, I just don't want to hear it. And it's not like I'm looking for retribution. I'm, a, I'm not looking for scalps. I'm looking for accountability. Well, and Biden's theme is America United, and that gave me like a, oh, no. Because again, and we talk about this more later on, but the fact that we need accountability and I, that is just signaling where it's just going to be like, let's just unify. Let's forget all of this and put it to the side. It's, it's been despondent. And I'll tell you what else I'm depressed about. As we're about to tape this, I just found out that our friend Bonnie Watson-Coleman, Congresswoman Watson-Coleman, a friend of the pod, was just diagnosed with COVID. And why was she diagnosed with COVID? Because she says that she was uh, sheltering during this whole coup attempt on the Capitol with a few members in a very enclosed space who, of course, were not wearing masks. So she thinks that's where she got it. This that's is a 75-year-old cancer. She just had cancer, by the way, a year or two ago. I mean, she, this is not 75 years old, cancer survivor, has COVID, thinks she contracted it from members of her own house, representatives, who refused to wear masks even while sheltering in place. So what's this woman's alternative when she saw that happening? She could have either refused to shelter with them, in which case she could have run back out and gotten potentially lynched by... Uh, this crazy MAGA mob um, and been physically harmed, or she could have sheltered in place and, and gotten sick from COVID. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable what's going on right now. That, that was what scared me so much, Julie. I can't believe that she has COVID, but also the fact that how close were we to watching mass executions? Like what, what was that line? Like what if Pelosi was still on the floor when they were there? That's what's so scary to me. Like, just, you know, moments later, like, if, if if a lot of these lawmakers weren't hidden, would we have had to witness this on on screen? I guess. I mean, legitimately, I don't know the answer to that. Because these people were clearly out for blood. I mean, they said they wanted to hang Mike Pence. How right. do you think they feel about Pelosi? Right. I'm <laughs> like, they see some AOC and some Pelosi. They're going to go, like crazy you don't know it's listen members of congress nancy pelosi certainly does but rank and file members of congress they don't travel with security no they just you know they don't really have even most of them don't even have body guys they just have themselves like, like what is rep body oh. watson coleman what is she gonna do like when all these people who are armed are coming in she's gonna get out of hiding with the covid people no yeah i mean exactly right I don't know. Maybe it's time to rethink security for members of Congress. I mean, you certainly had that horrible situation of that judge in New Jersey um, whose son uh, and husband were shot. Her son shot to death. Her husband shot um, by some disgruntled person who appeared before her in her in her courtroom. And the only measures, safety protocol measures that have been introduced and I think passed now is to, to keep judges 
addresses off the internet. That's fine. But is that enough for public officials anymore? I don't, I don't know what's happening anymore. <laughs> it's very depressing. And I will tell you what's really depressing is seeing people that I used to, or still do interact with on Twitter who followed me from my Fox days who were quite rational. I mean, we disagreed on stuff, but they were not necessarily excusing everything Trump did suddenly begin to drink the Kool-Aid in ways that I've just never, I just can't believe it. That's a thing. And, and something else that made me really like, I actually started crying because as you know, the person who I live with is Jewish and also her grandparents are Holocaust survivors, but seeing that like six S M and E or like whatever that, that they were wearing on their shirts with 6 million is not enough. Yeah. I just, I'm like, what? That is just complete. I don't even know. Yes. So (laughs) it's been an emotional roller coaster. You know, what's interesting. I have cousins in Israel. And when we first came to the States, they were very disappointed. They wanted us to go to Israel and we didn't. And one of them said something to me when I was very little and I was visiting Israel. I was probably eight or nine. And this is an adult woman. She said to me, you know, um, you guys will never be safe as Jews. Like you left the Soviet Union because you're Jews and you think you're going to be safe, but you'll never be safe. You won't be safe anywhere but here. And I kind of laughed it off. I was like, safe here. Are you kidding? This was like during the Lebanon war, you know, <laughs> it was not exactly, Israel's not exactly the safest place on earth. Um, but the reality is that kind of stuck with me all the time because you think these are just in the dredges of society and you think these anti-Semites are just in the dredges of society. And then you see people who excuse this behavior and say, no, it's the democratic party. That's really anti-Semitic because you know, something, 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 Charlie Kushner or Jared Kushner um, and Ivanka Trump, you know, and something, something, something embassy in Jerusalem. And they don't understand the difference between support of the state of Israel which is a political construct and anti-Semitism, which is not necessarily just a political construct. And when you see people openly wearing shirts like that, and it's the right to do that. I mean, I am a big believer in the first amendment, a huge believer in the first amendment. So if they want to, you know, put swastikas on their sweatshirts and walk around, that's, that's their prerogative in my view, but it is jarring to see that these are the people who support not just fringe candidates, they support the president of the United States because something that he has said spoke to them. They don't support Joe Biden. They don't support Barack Obama. They don't support George Bush. They don't support Mitt Romney or maybe they, I don't know, but, but they come out of hiding for this guy. And in fact, um, my good friend Tom Bonnier, who we're going to have on this podcast because it just occurs to me he'd be a great guest, um, who runs something called Target Smart, which is a, a huge data, democratic data uh, company. But he tweeted something out that I thought was so fascinating. He looked up the voting histories of most of the people who got arrested because he's got access to the voter file for the entire country. He looked them up. And they don't have much of a voting history insofar as they did not get political or did not decide to vote until Donald Trump came along. Wow. That's a lot to break down. Sit on that for a second. Think about that. 
And and you know what, what what's interesting is these are the people you think they hide their hatred in like a basement and have Nazi flag, but it's hidden and it's like the secret that they have. But this was just extremely overt. Like you can't get worse. <laughs> oh yeah. And what's fascinating about this is these guys used to tweet. I should remember again in 2016. Remember that Trump um, sheriff starth controversy and you know he had the yellow star and. That he put out in a mail piece and he said it was a sheriff's star, but it looked exactly like the yellow stars that Nazi would make people wear. And he, he kind of put that in a mail piece, you know, tagging Soros and all these other anti-Semitic dog whistles. I remember saying that on Megyn Kelly's show. And suddenly I got a rash of anti-Semitic tweets like I don't think I've ever gotten in my life. I mean, I'd never actually gotten any before that. And suddenly it was like the spigot had opened and in the midst of this 2016 election, I suddenly realized what was happening and how anti-Semitic they were. But what's interesting about them is that was all, you know, anonymous tweets and, and you didn't really know who they were. They never really showed their faces. You know, you could be very brave behind a computer screen with an anonymous avatar or no avatar at all. But these people have now come out from behind their computer screens. They're not just tweeting the stuff. They're showing up. And scaling the walls of the Capitol. And scaling the walls of the Capitol and killing a Capitol policeman who, by the way, was apparently a big Trump supporter. They're, you know, now they're murdering their own supporters. And the president of the United States refused to lower the flags for this man, Officer Sicknick, until I believe today, we're taping this on a Monday. Um, he died on Wednesday, it took him a week to lower the flags which i i, I mean, i'm the saltiness is pouring over i can't well, think about that i mean think about that i don't even think, I, don't, I don't even want to talk about what we're salty about this week because it's, yeah. it's everything because yeah. i will tell you this um it's striking to me that the people who talk about blue lives matter apparently not apparently not apparently they don't matter Talked about, oh, Antifa, whoever the hell Antifa is. I still don't know who they are. They don't exist. Antifa and Black Lives Matter and riots and there's riots and this and that. Really? Because what are you doing? Yeah. And some of these people are saying, well, we didn't, you know, these we were peaceful marchers. We didn't realize we we had uh, uh, crossed the perimeter of the Capitol. We weren't supposed to. I mean, you know who's going to buy that? Somebody who's never set foot on Capitol Hill. It is quite clear. <laughs> where the perimeter of the complex is. Oh my Quite God. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the, I was just an intern and in doing uh, for Senator Mel Martinez, like in 2008, doing tours of the Capitol building and security was really tight. <laughs> like you, you were not stepping out of place. These people showed up with plastic cuffs. <laughs> like they were going to take hostages. Yeah. And more importantly, you, you know, you go to Capitol Hill, you walk into any house or Senate office building, never mind the Capitol itself. You've got to go through a mag machine. Like there's no, you can't, you got to take everything out of your pockets. It's like going through, it's like going through TSA if you're going to fly somewhere. You don't just stroll in. <laughs> you certainly don't. Oh, whoops. I didn't realize that I've, I didn't realize that I trespassed. Uh, there's a mag machine. Did you go through it? 
did you put your purse into the machine to see if there's anything in there that shouldn't be in there before you enter this building? Exactly. Anyway, on the podcast today, we have um, our good friend, friend of the pod, Dr. Jason Stanley, a professor at Yale, who is, among other things, and he's one of the most brilliant people I know, if not the most brilliant person I know, but he is the author of several books that really, the reason we wanted to have him on today, he's the author of How Fascism Works, How Propaganda Works, um, and a bunch of other books, but what's fascinating about Jason is he helps make sense of this from in somewhat a political viewpoint, because as we talk about on the podcast today, this to me is no longer having a debate about politics, which is why I've now stopped debating people on Twitter who support Donald Trump. This is not a political debate anymore. It is something much more that requires uh, a psychiatric degree or a sociological degree or um, a philosophy degree as Jason has, but he helps make, helps us make sense of this in a way that I think is very unique and wonderful. And so coming up, Jason Stanley. Jason, thank you so much for coming back on. And I just want to start with a very simple question for you. I went on Twitter last night and said something that apparently got a lot of people troubled, which is I said that I am no longer going to debate Trump supporters. And my basis for that was I have, you know, I'm not afraid to certainly debate Trump supporters. I've been debating them for, you know, I don't know, all my years at Fox when Trump was running around on The Apprentice calling Obama a Kenyan-born communist and all, you know, go on, so on and so forth. But it finally occurred to me after the events of last week that there's really, I don't have the psychiatric degree to debate them. This is no longer a political debate. This is now a something that psychiatrists or philosophers like you or sociologists can better address rather than political consultants or pundits like me. So that's why I wanted to turn to you. Help us make sense of this. Is this is this a fever that could be politically broken or is this something more in, in the annals of fascism, which is I think we all agree is, is the start of what we're seeing right now? Yeah, so it's it's not something you can break by debate. It's got to be broken in some other way. It's like, think of it this way. Um, think Think of, for a very long time, people thought homosexuality was a disease, homosexuality was some deep problem. What broke that? It was something different. It was a social movement that got people to fundamentally realize that the way they were looking at the world was incorrect. Um, what we've got now is we've got, you know, we've got we've got this crazed this belief that if you look at it is untethered from reality, that the election was stolen, that Trump won massively. Uh, we have it being promoted by people like Josh Hawley, Yale Law School grad, Stanford BA. Ted Cruz, who was the runner-up nationally in the college debate, so these are not dumb people. Uh, you're not going to debate Ted Cruz about whether or not Trump won the election. He knows perfectly well that Trump didn't win the election. This this lie, or as Tim Snyder just called it in the New York Times, uh, the this the big lie uh, of the election. Uh, it it's it's a myth. It's a founding myth that creates a long narrative that lays down a sort of vengeful political movement. And, uh, and it's an identity for people. So you have some, some people who no doubt believe that Trump really won the election. Uh, but for many people, it's not like that. It's like Tim Snyder rightfully in the New York Times 
compared it to the myth that the 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 stab in the back myth that was at the foundation of the Nazi party that Jews that German Jews and world Jewry betrayed Germany at Versailles. Um, you weren't going to dismantle that myth by ex- arguing to people that the protocols of the elders of Zion were false, <laughs> that there isn't, you know, I mean, the protocols of the elders of Zion, the conspiracy theory that Jews controlled the world and were, were advancing feminism and equality for minorities as a way to undermine uh, white Christian dominance and destroy the nation. Wait, you're uh, missing my you're missing my favorite part of the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is, and I can say this as a Jew, um, that that Eastern European Jews and I think all European Jews would kill Christian babies around Easter, which also coincides often with Passover to to use their blood to bake Passover matzah. That's my favorite part of the protocol. Well, that, that's blood libel, which far predates the but protocol. But that was in the, yes, it was. But that, that didn't that make its way around? Uh, well, no, that's not really, for the protocols, there's different, uh, QAnon is a mixture of protocols and blood libel. Right. So that's what we're dealing with now. So when we talk about this, and when you talk about debating people, and I respond with, you can't debate people seized by this, uh, and I'm talking about these conspiracy theories. Uh, it, this is not history. It's present because QAnon mixes blood libel with the protocols. But the protocols really doesn't discuss blood libel. Let, let me pro- ask you this. Let me ask you this question, though, because you, you brought up homosexuality. And I think it's interesting because that for a lot of people was rooted opposition to homosexuality was rooted in religion. Right. right. They found their favorite Bible verse that said that, you know, it's sinful. And, and so people pointed to a higher authority than i.e. God to oppose homosexuality. But when it comes to what we're dealing with now and, and movements like this in history, which you've which you've written about really eloquently, it's not really so much about religion. The the movement becomes religion, right? Yeah. The, the leader becomes re- the religious figures. So that Donald Trump is the equivalent of the Bible for them. Whatever Donald Trump says is gospel. Right. So the 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 you have, uh, but there's a, a complex interaction with religions in these far right mass follow uh, mass movements. Donald Trump's huge base of support is largely uh, white evangelical Christians. So, uh, so it's not disassociated from traditional religion. But yes, in this, in, and one reason that he has so many evangelical followers is they're used to this idea that there's someone who is the sword of God. And for him, he is the, for them, he is the sword of God. So religious imagery is all interwoven in it. And, and like with the 1920s and the 1930s, uh, what they represent, they represent the opposition as communists who are as godless communists. Uh, you know, they leave the Jew godless Jewish communists out, but, uh, but you could see they represent the opposition as godless communists who are going to destroy the traditional family. And and how did this come about? I mean, how is it that he was able to see a symptom? I, this is what I can't figure out. Is he the disease or is he a symptom? It seems to me like he's a symptom that this long predated him. and They were just looking for somebody like him. I think it's both. I think he's an extremely skilled uh, rhetor. He's extremely skilled at the leader follower at, at mass politics, as it's called in the literature. Uh, he's extremely skilled at the rallies, 
at the at the at the uh, at, at the psychology of the rallies. Um, he's he's very good at imagery. Uh, he, so but he's clearly also a symptom because the 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 this has been paved for a very, very long time by uh, by the Republican Party, to be frank. <laughs> so uh, so not every member of the Republican Party, not Mitt Romney, not but but by forces by and by America and by a longstanding longstanding American forces. This is we have a long history of this. I mean, Henry Ford handed out 500,000 copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So this whole thing, this idea that there's a cosmopolitan liberal elite uh, who are really seeking world communism backed by the banks and and trying to promote race war uh, by uh, by getting black people to rise up against white people. So, you know, and then the ultimate goal being communism. This structure is the ideology of the KKK. And it's also the ideology of the Nazi party. Uh, so that is homegrown. The KKK is, of course, homegrown. So how does this end? Because I'm sorry, Emily, let me just ask this question, because how does this end? You've done you, uh, this. You've studied this. And I'm certainly a, somewhat a student of history, not to the extent that you are. But to me, the Mussolini's, the the Stalins, the um, the the Hitlers, uh, these called the Lenins, the cult of personality. It doesn't end in any way except violently, right? I mean, the Soviet Union was overthrown, I guess, peacefully, but after undergoing just 70 years of, of oppression and violence and, and death and destruction, that obviously we know how Mussolini ended. We know how Hitler ended. We know what um, how how people like this typically end. So the question for me is, what will break this fever other than an outright physical violent confrontation, which is, I guess is what they're spoiling for in some quarters? Right, they're spoiling for a physical violent confrontation. And we've pushed we've pushed American history. So one thing I think that gives that could give us hope here that should give us hope is that this is not some foreign thing. This is America. We're talking about you know. We need to recognize that American, there were American fascist movements in the interwar period. The KKK influences Hitler. Uh, the, the the ideologies strongly overlap. QAnon is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion plus blood libel. Uh, the, so so this is not it's not some sort of Im- importation from Europe. Uh, White supremacist ideology has always held. The KKK was always anti-Semitic. They always said the Jews are our leftist communists who are trying to push black people into open rebellion against whites so the Jews can take over. So what stops that? Well, we look at American history and in American history, it was black American protest that stood up. There was a civil rights movement. It was, you know, and it was they stood up against these forces. And they did social movements that enabled people, decent Americans to say, decent white Americans to say, wait a moment, <laughs> uh, we need to address things. And I think what what black Americans have been telling us recently is that our law enforcement is filled with white supremacists, <laughs> that that we have a we have a serious far right problem throughout law enforcement in American society. Uh, and which results in in brutality and things like that. So uh, so look at so yet again we saw Stacey Abrams uh, sign up hundreds of thousands of new voters in Georgia. 
we saw political mobilization of young people to the polls. Uh, that will stop it. That will stop it. We need, we need, uh, you know, we've stopped these forces repeatedly in American history. Uh, and, you know, and, and when you listen to, frankly, a lot of black Americans, they've been telling us about, uh, they've been telling us that we have a white supremacy far right problem in this country. Yeah, no, and, and exactly to your point is like the data over the last decade has clearly articulated that the threat is from the right. Like even back in 2006, I was just writing about like the the FBI produced a report talking about the infiltration of local law enforcement by white nationalists. And then last year yeah. in October, an FBI assessment said the same thing and the Department of Homeland Security. It also said the same thing that white nationalists are in law enforcement. But so the question is, how do you eliminate them from the system that, I mean, has kind of propped them up so, for so long and kind of put them together and now give them weapons, too? Absolutely. So we have we shouldn't we we also post 9-11 created Homeland Security and ICE novel forces that Trump very cleverly and intelligently turned into his bases of support. So history tells us, you know, there's this debate now, and I'm doing like four four interviews this week on this. Is this do we use the term coup, and you know how what terminology is appropriate? Now you start talking of technically you start talking about coup when you have members supporting the coup who are inside law enforcement, inside military, inside uh, various apparatuses of the state. Now what we know, unfortunately because the Trump administration told us not to follow this path. We don't, we have not, we, we don't have know as much as we should about who has these white nationalist far right sympathies in law enforcement branches, but we do know it's a lot of people. Um, so we need, we need to start focusing on domestic terrorism. <laughs> uh, you know, we need to focus. We need to purge law enforcement of people sympathetic to these beliefs. Uh, we need to look at. There was a very good piece by Alex Vital, an interview with him yesterday, who's a policing expert, and he was breaking down the errors that led to what happened in the Capitol. And he said, "Look, before any type of protest, the police meet in a meeting, law enforcement meets to assess the threat." And because there's so much white nationalism in law enforcement, they always overestimate the threat when it's black people or leftists, which is why you have over like too much violence against them. Uh, and then you uh, you underestimate the threat, uh, and they vastly underestimate the threat, as we clearly saw when it's white nationalists. Uh, so, so you know, it was the, the level of failure of law enforcement that had to be involved for the capital to be invaded tells you everything you need to know about uh, failures into the government's failure to 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 assess correctly this threat. Um, but isn't it more pernicious than that? Because I'll tell you, um, and I don't really talk about this. Not many people tell me, isn't it more pernicious? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> let, let me try to out pessimist you right now, Jason Stanley. You and I have known each other for, I don't know, what, 20, 30 years? Yeah. This day, I'm going to out pessimist you. I was in 
Washington on 9-11, and I worked um, in the Senate that day. And when that plane hit the Pentagon, um, I was working for a United States senator at the time, and the Capitol Police immediately ran into our office. We were, I believe, in the Hart Senate office building, and they told everybody to evacuate. And the senator who I was with, for whatever reason, told me to stay with him. He sent everybody else home. Um, we can talk about why he and I apparently had a mutual um, murder-suicide pact, which I wasn't aware of until that moment. But he wanted me to stay with him. And so they evacuated me with him um, and the rest of the Senate and the, and, and the bulk of the House to the Capitol Police headquarters, which is where we spent that day. Um, I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets because I think it's fairly well known 20 years later that that's where they moved um, the members for, for their security. And so I was able to witness firsthand what the Capitol Police is capable of in a real emergency. And I can tell you right now that the Capitol Police is capable of quite a bit. They're not rent-a-cops. They're not, you know, sycophants who just open doors for senators or members of Congress. They're not people who just um, bust jaywalkers on Pennsylvania Avenue, although some of them are. Um, they are a legit law enforcement force. And so watching this on TV on Wednesday, my first initial thought from that experience was something here is going on that is above and beyond um, what, their inability to protect the Capitol. In fact, they're quite capable of protecting their members. That is, in fact, their entire job. And so to me, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but to me, my initial thought was, what is going on with the Capitol Police? And who has, their entire mission is to protect that complex. And they failed spectacularly in ways that I think are more than just that they were not given help from Homeland Security, or they weren't given help from the FBI, or they weren't given help from whoever they asked for help, the National Guard. Something else was going on that day, and I think we'll find out eventually what was going on. But do you have that sense as well, that there's something about the Capitol Police that day that allowed these people, invited almost these people in? I, I, think, I think it would be foolish. I mean, unless you think that America is so unique in the world and could never, I mean, in all coups, the president of the United States is calling for a coup. So when the president does that, <laughs> the president has long been calling, been trying, been very cleverly, very, it's what he's been doing, he's been doing it all in the open. That's one nice thing about President Trump. He's been openly flirting and calling for law enforcement to be his allies, because if you're going to overthrow the government, you need various parts of the government on your side. So how could it not be that there's going to be large portions of law enforcement, military, certainly people in the rank and file who are sympathetic to this? Certainly you saw from the videos, you saw various Capitol Police, I mean, utterly and totally different than being in a leftist protest. Um, I mean, I was in Occupy Wall Street all the time, although I skipped out once I started to kettle people. And the police never made nice with us. There was no sign of any lovey-doveys uh, uh, or, or Black Lives Matter protests. So on the one hand, you had a number of police who were just helping people. Like how much of that is, how much of that was trying to tame the crowd versus how much of that was, was just, oh, hey, these are my friends is unclear. Uh, but, you know, um, in moments when a coup threatens, uh, you know, people are making bets about who's going to win, right? 
And so I sincerely hope that no members of the Capitol Police were, were thinking, OK, the, the terroristic mob, that's our side. But certainly there were many people who were supporting the president who are Trump supporters uh, among the Capitol Police, we know, and that's fine. Uh, but uh, the president of the United States was, call, is, was calling to overthrow an election and place himself in power. Um, but can we wait? I mean, you, you keep pointing and you're absolutely right. I'm, Emily and I talk all the time about how black women saved this country, you know, <laughs> time and time and time again. But with voter ID laws in place, with all the voter suppression going on, it seems like this train is a runaway train and we're counting on the civil rights movement, a new civil rights movement to right. save us. And it seems like they may be going on two parallel tracks, but one is going a lot faster than the other because one is given all the tools to be going at warp speed and the other is given no tools and in fact is hindered every step of the way. Yeah, well, you're really giving, Julie, you're really giving me a run for my money, aren't you here? I'm on the really depressed this week. I got to tell you, I've been, you know, I, I went from being ecstatic over the results in Georgia to just being completely despondent. I guess, you know, Jason, you study this, but I lived it. You know, I, I'm, as I keep saying, I'm the product of a Russian Jewish upbringing. You know, I've seen this movie before. I've lived in it. My yeah. parents certainly have. My grandparents absolutely have. So, uh, you know. Well, my parents are Holocaust survivors. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you and I could sit here and one up each other about family tragedies all our lives. But I mean, it, but yeah. is, I think maybe that yeah. informs my pessimism this week, which is how, how do we stop this without right. so, it getting to a violent conflagration? I don't know. So Gramsci's phrase is pessimism, uh, pessim of the, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Right. Uh, so, okay. uh, so that, that's what's really important here. Uh, it's absolutely right that that we've got a very drastic sign of decline is the fact that we have highly educated, very sophisticated members of the powerful members of the Senate going along with essentially the stab in the back myth, the the revenge fantasy, consp the, the motivating myth, the election was stolen. We have many QAnon supporters in Congress. Uh, now I'm going along with your pessimistic line. We have many people who are certifiably, you know, we have both. We have both the sort of certifiably out there QAnon supporters, and then we have the pure cynicism of a Hawley and a Cruz, who who know perfectly well what is or going on, but are hoping to lead the future movement. So that's terrifying because you have the unifying. You have now these people who know exactly what's going on and they know exactly there's this enormous lie and they don't care and they're going to use it in the future uh, for political power. They're going to hope to gain the people that Trump radical helped radicalize. Um, so how do we address it? Well, one way, one thing I think we've seen that's interesting. I mean, at, at these moments, everyone's looking to see who's going to win in the end. So. It's very important that there's a show of strength against this 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 frankly new movement that's going to arise. The election was stolen movement. So it has to be a very strong response to what happened on January 6th. What does that uh, look like to you? Well, well, you know, we're seeing so capitalism is complicated because, of course, the the oligarchs and the tech titans and everyone, they're going to just go with the winning team. 
Uh, so, you know, and, you know, as we see in China, as we see it, you know, they go with who's going to win. But if you have large, but what we're seeing now is we're seeing people shun Holly Cruz, uh, you know, the locking so suddenly because suddenly the, the tech, I mean, I'm not in favor of tech companies having the power they do. I'm very against that. But, you know, <laughs> uh, the, 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 it was so unpopular what happened among so many people that the tech companies decided to unilaterally impose the kind of free, the kind of hate speech regulations that every single other democracy in the world has. So the United States is alone among world's democracies and not having hate speech laws. But what we saw is we saw capitalism take over and impose them. Um, Canada, Germany, Australia, you know, uh, India, they all have hate speech regulations. Uh, now suddenly the private companies are doing that. Uh, so, so, you know, I don't think that's a permanent solution. I think all of that should be done by government and not by private companies. But, uh, but there's a kind of backlash and the backlash needs to be joined, forces of capital, boycotts, that sort of thing. Yeah, you and I actually disagree on that. I'm I'm a First Amendment absolutist, but I will say I think it's uh, to be <laughs> to extend my streak of pessimism today. Uh, I think it's fascinating that Twitter waited until Trump was virtually out of the White House. The, yeah. the Republicans had lost control of the Senate, and you know, Joe Biden's about to be inaugurated. To so suddenly wake up to the fact that this man has been advocating just awful free, awful speech, and I wonder if he had won re-election. And I wonder if he had just decided to rally up his troops to go and attack, I don't know, a Democratic Congress because they voted on something that he didn't like or they decided to impeach him again or whatever reason that they would do it, that he would do it, whether these companies would have taken action if he were still in the White House for another four years. And my, my suspicion is probably not. My suspicion is that no, they are that cynical. Of course not. Yeah. No, that's the pro No, yeah, I'm not. No, I don't mean to suggest. I don't mean to suggest that I don't. I, I don't have any stated view about the First Amendment. I don't know what I think. I, okay. I think it's complicated because my book, How Propaganda Works, is all about this. Uh, it's complicated. The problem of democracy dating back to Plato's Republic is that is free speech. Plato says democracy will lead straight to tyranny because yeah. the tyrant will come and split the masses and 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 rep represent himself as the protector of the people against an enemy in their midst and end democracy. So you know, none of us is going to solve the major problem of democracy dating back 2,300 years. So, so like, so my view of free speech and democracy is it's complicated. It's the sure. central problem of democratic political philosophy. But you're absolutely right what you just said. When you leave yourself, when you send the functions of public, the public sphere and government completely into the free market, that's going to have benefits and that's going to have consequences. The consequences are that those companies are going to do what the bottom line tells them to do. And they're going to look at where the wind is blowing. And if Trump had won, of course they wouldn't have banned him. Emily, give us the optimistic millennial view. Yeah. He's got well, about to hang themselves. Well, well, I actually kind of to go with both of your points, uh, Jason, you tweeted out it was a post-Civil War unity that led us that led to calls for Jim Crow. And I think it's interesting, you know, Joe Biden's inauguration theme is America United. So how after when Biden, you know, assumes office, 
do we unite, but then also don't take measures that allay this nationalistic crowd and, and give them certain gives that will keep other people down and suppress them? Like, how do we avoid that kind of fate, like a Jim Crow kind of right. allaying these this crowd? Great, great question. Uh, great question, Emily. And I don't pretend to have all the answers. So to be clear, calls for unity led to Jim Crow. That was what led to Jim Crow. Like the South w Reconstruction, there were 10 years of black Americans in the South allowed to vote. And then there was a huge, the, the whites in the South wanted that to end. Uh, and there was a presidential election. And as part of the deal that came out of the presidential election, the federal government agreed to remove troops from the South. And that resulted in the end of black people voting for 100 years, for 90 years, almost a century. So, and it was, and, and the whole calls where we need to unify after this divisive history. So the problem is you cannot have unity. So there's this slogan, uh, no justice, no peace. <laughs> um, before you can't just go for peace. Uh, the moral of history is you can't go just go for peace without addressing the problems that led to it, le led to the, the end of peace in the first place. Um, so what what we need to do so we can't just, you know, we, if, if everyone gets like a rose. And we don't address the situation that led us here, then the moral that people are going to learn is that there are no consequences. So. Uh, so, you know, we can't, you know, when oh, I think Obama made a big mistake in not dealing with torture, for instance, the torture regime, uh, you know, if you're in government, the things we've seen in the last four years are truly shocking. I mean, the Bush administration was shocking in various ways, but this is also truly shocking. The response to COVID, uh, the explicit political, remember the in July when, uh, when, when it was announced that the COVID, that Jared Kushner's task force decided to back off any national plan because it was mainly democratic states that were hit. Yep. So, so you know, it, we all just take it blow after blow because it's each thing is more shocking than the last. So there must be some accountability. If there's no accountability, <laughs> then ho the Hollies and Cruises of the world are going to learn that you can just take it up a notch further. That's um, so so important to say, because I've been saying for a while now that Donald Trump is a product of many things. One of them is the failure to hold Nixon accountable Yes. in the 70s. And the fact that Ford and the quote unquote, you know, to unify the country, as he said, pardoned Nixon for all crimes against the United States, which allowed Nixon to reestablish himself as this. And this is something I did my graduate work on um, as this elder statesman. Um, who then proceeded to go on the speaking circuit and, and write well-received books and, and become this eminence grise. So did Henry Kissinger, for that matter, which really galls me to no end, but we're talking about Nixon now. Um, this eminence grise of, of, of foreign policy and, and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, zero accountability. So what did that tell presidents going forward? You will have no accountability if you commit crimes against the United States. And this is not a crime against the United States. Like, whoops, I lied about getting oral sex for my intern. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, <laughs> no, is, this, this is the real deal. The guy is an insurrectionist who yeah. full on promoted a coup against the legislative branch of government, a co-equal yeah. branch of government, importantly. It's still going on. That's we had to go for out of it. Yeah. So that, that's right. And we have 
you know, huge numbers of Senate. And, and as you say, the private companies are going to go with whoever's winning. So, uh, the, you know, that's everyone is now looking who's winning, who's winning. After reading your book last time, one of the things that as this was happening really stuck with me is you're like the moral of history is no one is safe from virulent nationalism. Someone who thinks we are is the, are the ones who are going to fall to it. And that that was the whole thing, because so many people are like, you know, this can't happen to us. And, and the sixth was a very strong shit. It's right. happening. That's that's profound, Emily. That's exactly right. It, it So many things have happened in such quick succession. For someone like Julie, from her background, she understands this because she's Russian. The Russians understand this. Oh, the Russians. And so uh, my wife invented this. I don't know about invented this, but we've been through it. Yeah, I mean, this is my my wife grew up in Kenya, and she she she's been commenting the whole time when when Trump was doing his news things every day for COVID. She's like, oh, it's Kenya when Daniel Moy is on TV every night, and uh, you know uh, it's very familiar. The coup, the process, post election process was very familiar to her. Uh, This is very familiar. So the problem is there's a desire, and I've seen this throughout with the reaction to my work, um, there's a desire uh, not to believe it because it's too frightening to believe. And so uh, so w- with my work, the reaction to my work for years has been, oh, it's you're being alarmist. It couldn't possibly happen here. And people deny that that they're doing American exceptionalism. But it's a natural thing. It's you don't want to accept that, you know, this can happen. Uh, you know, often people don't accept it until it's at their front door. So uh, so we have to, what's really important, I think, is to instead of saying, saying the name of your country, in this case, the United States is my country, our country, uh, say country X, and then describe the events that are happening. That's a good way to understand it understand the situation you're in say in country x the president who uh is calling the election fraudulent in country x the president has regularly pardoned uh uh navy c uh elite members of the military who've done brutal things in country x the president regularly calls for law enforcement to be more brutal uh in country X, et cetera. And then you can see in country X, this capital is stormed. What's going to happen in country X? That's a good way of, because uh, then you remove your own personal connection and you can see the situation as it in fact is. Um, it's excellent. I will tell you, um, I've been in, in Pennsylvania quite a bit over the last couple of months and I can and what's bizarre to me is driving down the roads there and I'll end with this it's what are we about six weeks past the election people still have their Trump signs up on their lawns they have not given up on yeah. this. I've never seen anything like it I mean it's time to take the signs down regardless of who you supported they yeah. still have them up and they have them up proudly as a middle finger to the real outcome of the election, which is that, of course, he won Pennsylvania. Um, Jason, Stanley, thank you so, so much. We know how busy you are. Unfortunately, fascism is on, <laughs> in vogue right now or the topic of, of discussing it is. So we know how busy you are. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Julie and Emily. It's always good to talk to both of you. Take care. Bye. Take Thanks. Care. Bye, Jason.
I mean, the whole time during what happened on January 6th, I was thinking of Jason's book because so many of the things he said that this that this people thinking that something like this couldn't happen, it did. It did. And as Jason said to us offline, he wishes that his book was not necessary. How fascism works was <laughs> not necessary. Because there would be no fascism. I don't use that word lightly. No. At all. But when you have armed thugs attacking the seat of government at the behest of a cult leader who happens to also be the leader of the nation, that's the definition of a fascistic regime that they're trying to accomplish here. Right. And, and Julie, can I say one thing I've, we've, um, I didn't, we didn't have time to mention, but I remember when Jason in our first conversation, he was talking about with fascism, you invert things. For example, you respect the flag and, you know, the flag is sacred. But these people who are so-called patriots were walking over these hollowed halls of Congress yeah. and just trashing it. And and that was another thing in his book that just like completely like was making my mind just enraged and have smoke. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's so fascinating to me is they um, there was a tweet that somebody put out. I forgot who it was, but it was such an interesting tweet. And this person said, every time I see somebody with an American flag now, I assume they want to do me harm. Because who are the people riding around with American flags? Probably Trump supporters. Not necessarily. I actually have an American flag out uh, at my country house, but I do that because I want to take it back. Right. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but it's very, it's, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. And by the way, the Confederate flag was run through the Capitol building. That did not happen during the Civil War. They never got to Washington. That's what was really freaking scary. And again, the fact that friend of the pod, Rep Bonnie Watson Coleman, did not want to leave her COVID strewn infested room. Like that's a big reason why not to. Like, what do you do? It's death or I don't know. Like, what's worse? Yeah, I mean, there's a great example. Am I going to die now? Am I going to risk dying? Am I going to risk dying now? Am I going to risk dying potentially later? An African-American yeah. 75-year-old cancer survivor. I mean, think about if you're Bonnie Watson Coleman. You're a 75-year-old African-American woman. You have seen it all. Yeah. This is, by the way, this is not a shock to African-Americans, what's happening. No. I was shocked. You were shocked. You talk to any, I talk to any of my African-American friends. They're like, welcome to reality, idiot. Yeah. And they're right. So think about it from her perspective. I have not spoken to her. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but <laughs> she's not rushing out there thinking, oh, I've just walked through this crowd quietly. Nobody's going to you know, do anything to me. Right. Like the, I, I just that image of the guy with the Confederate flag walking through the halls is in right they immediately have- when you said it, these images and then the noose and all of this, like, wh- where's, where's, where's the representative going to go? And they hung up Trump flags. I mean, that's what's so amazing. They hung up Trump flags. You know, during the course of this campaign, I keep saying I I spent some time in Pennsylvania, the massive, massive Trump flags that would fly from people's flagpoles, not American flags, Trump flags. And what I kept thinking about was um, I remember being in Egypt, I want to say, gosh, 10, 15 years ago. I, I, I spent some time there, not just once. But what always struck me about whenever you fly into Cairo back in those days is from the airport into the city and everywhere, not just there, but immediately there were pictures on uh, flags, pictures, 
billboards of Hosni Mubarak, who was the president of Egypt at the time, an autocrat, obviously, and a, and a despot who eventually um, got overthrown. But you had young Mubarak and then middle-aged Mubarak and then older Mubarak, like all these different pictures of Mubarak. And then when growing up in Moscow, I remember, of course, everywhere you went, you saw these pictures of um, on flags everywhere, of of billboards and, and flags everywhere, of Marx, Engels, and Lenin everywhere. Marx, Engels, Lenin. Marx, Engels, Lenin. My mother tells me that that was the case when Stalin was alive, when she was a little girl. You have you have placards of Stalin everywhere. It was a cult of personality. You don't have that here, or you didn't have that here, right? You didn't have Obama flags or Clinton flags or Bush flags or or. Ronald Reagan flags flying from people's flagpoles. Right. You didn't replace the national symbol, which is either the flag or, or you know, we have a myri- we have myriad symbols that, that that people can can put up with a cult of personality. But you do in these autocratic countries. You do, um, and. You know, I'm fairly well traveled. I know you are too. I mean, you go to England, you don't, you know, I mean, they have the Queen, which is kind of symbolic. She doesn't really have any power, but you don't have placards of, of Boris Johnson or you don't, you know, Emmanuel Macron in France. Um, but you do in these autocratic countries. And that says something. And it's, and, and, and here as well, Trump flags on the Capitol. Not American flags, Trump flags. And it just shows you how fragile our democracy is. These people need to be held to account. And we can have, you know, this call for unity. Until the fever is broken, there can be no unity. Because the unity that they would accept is only their worldview. And if you're Donald Trump, it's never enough. It's never enough. Mike Pence was the biggest sycophant on earth. Even that wasn't enough. Fox News, biggest sycophants on the planet. Not enough for him. It is never enough. He is the beast who constantly needs to be fed. And if you give him an inch, he will take a mile. And there's no amount that will satisfy him or satiate him. So there can be no unity with people until this fever breaks. There needs to be account and there needs to be accountability. He needs to be held to account. And not just him. That disgusting video, I don't know if you saw it, of Donald Trump Jr. That Donald oh. Trump Jr., this video of him and his girlfriend and Ivanka and the president and the chief of staff to the White House, all of them just watching this from some makeshift situation room in some tent having like a family party watching this you mean evidence of promoting and supporting an insurrection (laughs) i mean what the hell is this family doing there anyway and threatening people if you don't support us if you're not going to be with us we're going to come for you i'm going to personally come for you there can't be unity with people like that Mm -mm. anyway on that (laughs) happy note um we have a great bunch of guests lined up for the first couple of months of this podcast, which I'm really excited about. Me too. I'm excited. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to our next interview and having these amazing conversations. 
I agree. All right. Happy New Year. So wonderful to see you in 2021. Just so you know, I baked your favorite cake last night. You were supposed to come over and you didn't. Oh. But I it anyway, it's here and it's not going to be eaten by you, but I will bake you one the next time you guys come over again. That is a chocolate tahini cake. Oh my God. That everybody on the planet should know how to bake because it's so good. Okay. Oh. Bye. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> 